Great. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks very much for making it today. Uh, my name is Ravi Guru Murphy. I'm the chief executive of Nesta. Uh, for those of you who don't know Nesta, Nesta is an organization that's focused on mission-driven innovation, hence the title of this, um, this, uh, this event. Uh, what we do is try and design, test, and scale solutions to the society's biggest challenges, like sustainability, health, or um, fairness and inequality. And I'm really delighted to be able to have this panel today here um, on whether mission-driven government is new. Um, and we've got Kevin Ferreter, from, uh, who's the chief economist at uh, Labour Together. Um, we've got Ellie, um, I'm going to get your name wrong. All right, lean into it, it's Cumbo. <laughs> Ellie Cumbo. Just, just like um, Dumbo, let's see. <laughs> um, and we've also got Andrew Greenway, who is... Um, I don't know how to describe you from public first, but you're public, public digital, public well, digital and a founder re and, and recovering civil servant. And recovering civil servant, great. Mm -hmm. um, so before we get into the discussion on mission-driven government, um, we're gonna, I'm going to hand over to um, uh, Isabel to talk a little bit about UK options. So what Nesta, along with a whole host of partners, including Resolution Foundation, IFS and others have been doing, is thinking through what are the big societal challenges facing the country out to 2040? Because in a way, missions are about responding to big societal challenges, and we've been trying to do some work on what are they, what defines them, where is their agreement and disagreement. So, Isabel, do you want to just kick off? So, um, Labour has set up its five missions, and we're here this evening to talk about what that means in practice. But before we do that, I'm going to say a few words about the context a next government will be operating in, and why we may need to think differently about delivery, particularly as we look beyond immediate crises and to the longer term. These longer-term trends and the choices and trade-offs they present for a next government are the focus of Nesta's options project. Um, we are exploring the fundamentals, how we got here in the trajectory to 2040. We're identifying where there's consensus amongst experts, and we've worked with over 100 so far. And we'll be digging into the policy options that a next government could have to deliver on those priorities. So why 2040? Well, a child born today will come of age in 2040. Um, the trajectory to 2040 isn't a foregone conclusion and decisions that we take now will shape that trajectory. So whether and how we are able to harness digital technology for social good, how and whether we capitalise upon green growth, the opportunities for green growth. So what do we know about 2040? What context is the next government going to have and be operating in? Well, we know that we will have 30% more pensioners than we do now. That puts pressure on pensions, on public services, and our working age population isn't keeping up. Our work with the IFS suggests that just to stand still on public service delivery, we'll need another 70 billion per year in today's money by 2040. And what do we know about now? Well, we know that we're in a low growth environment and we invest much, much less than comparator countries. Um, the gap you can see here between the UK, the USA and Germany translates into about 100 billion less that we're investing compared to Germany and the USA. We also know that we are increasingly unequal in terms of wealth. In the past few years, the wealth of the top 10% has grown by 25 times more than the bottom 30. So we know that our next government will be grappling with an insecure environment, huge fiscal constraints, and so that business as usual, is unlikely to work, which is why we're interested in talking about missions and what it means in practice, not just the what, but the how. And now during our discussion on mission-driven government and what it means, um, and I'll hand over to our panel in a second, uh, we're going to ask for a bit of audience participation. So um, you can scan the QR code and you can go to slido.com and type in policy success. And we would like you to tell us what you think the most successful policies have been over the past 30 years. And then over the course of our discussion, our panelists may choose to draw on those examples and see what, if anything, we can learn from those examples of successful policy delivery to think about how we can deliver on missions going forward. And with that, I will hand over to Ravi and our panelists. Thanks very much, Isabel. Um, so mission-driven government, when it was announced probably about six or seven months ago that Labour was going to have five missions, I think the commentariat reaction was somewhat muted or mixed. The, the natural criticism would be, isn't this the same as a pledge or a promise? Isn't it just a, another way of a, uh, a politician talking about their to-do list? Um, as I said, we're slightly biased at Nesta because we focus on mission-driven innovation, but we do think there is something distinctive about 
a mission-driven approach to how you govern. And that's what I want to get into today. I'm going to ask each of the panelists to sort of say two minutes um, to kick off the discussion. I'm just going to start by framing it. For me, there are, there are three things that are quite distinctive. One is that missions force you to prioritise. When Labour came to power last in 97, by 1998, they had 600 public service agreements. You couldn't really have 600 missions without looking quite ridiculous. So one is that forced prioritisation, which in a, in a time when there is scarce political capital and financial capital, prioritisation is going to be quite important for any government. And the second thing is that it forces you to define a very specific outcome goal. And that matters because one of the tendencies when you're forced to prioritise into five things is you make those things very abstract composites of lots of other things. Whereas the specificity of a mission with a very particular goal does force you to, to be specific. And, and that might sound obvious, like table stakes in government, but actually when David Cameron came in, he got rid of outcome-based measures and said, look, let's hold people to do, hold people to count on just whether they've done the thing they've said they're going to do, not whether it actually had any results. So outcome-focused government is actually different. The third thing I think is the most distinct is the sense of ambition. Because a mission isn't just a simple target that you know you're going to achieve. It's a moonshot. It's something you don't, it's a, it's a journey. You don't even know how you're going to get there, but you're going to do whatever it takes to, to achieve it. And I think that speaks to a very different way of governing. It also speaks to a very different way of talking about the work you're doing. So instead of saying, we have a step-by-step -step plan fully costed, and I guarantee if we execute on that plan, it will achieve the objective. A mission, you know, a, a moonshot objective, you can't say that. It involves experimentation, failure, risk-taking, all the things that are very normal outside of government in businesses, but very abnormal in Whitehall. Um, and it also, um, therefore, requires a different way of, 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 of managing the political communications around that. You're forced in government to be very certain. I know that my plan will achieve things, when the truth is you're not. And I think the political skill will be how to build confidence in a government by providing the concrete sense of progress, but also create a space for risk-taking and experimentation, which is the key to, to missions. So for me, that's, that's what makes it distinctive immediately. Um, but I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to hearing more from, first of all, Andrew, who's going to say a couple of minutes um, from his perspective. Thanks, Ravi. Um, so I sort of said at the start that I'm a recovering civil servant, which means the answer that I'm going to give to the is mission-driven government new question is obviously it could be. Um, having kind of peered around government, not just in the UK, but in other countries over the last 10 years or so, I think it's really clear that for mission-driven governments to be something that's genuinely new, it's going to involve combining, as Ravi says, that radical policy intent with a radical new how. So some quite profound changes to some of the ways of working within public institutions, um, to things that we maybe have seen as the convention in the past. Um, and I think without that, truth be told, then I think it will end up looking and resembling quite a lot, a lot of the same old, same old. Now, there's some good news, I think, which is there are already some ink spots of those new ways of working already in central government, in local government, in the NHS, in the UK, as well as other countries that we can learn from as well. But the truth of those kind of examples is that they're overwhelmingly being driven by a very small handful of genuinely exceptional leaders. Those things are generally happening within Whitehall, despite the structures and incentives of public service organisations a lot of the time, rather than because of them. When I say kind of what do, the radical how and some of those new ways of working, I'm touching on some of the threads that Ravi's already pulled out in his introductory remarks. So that kind of focus on outcomes rather than deliverables is really important. But there's also some qualities of the teams that are working on those missions within public service organizations that are also perhaps slightly different or less conventional from what you typically see in Whitehall. So for example, those teams will be very much multidisciplinary they will kind of combine quite a lot of the tribes that you often see in Whitehall departments, policy, analysis, digital and technology skills, but crucially also the frontline operational delivery experience alongside those people within one team working on shared problems, rather than the default which you often see now in kind of major transformative in initiatives in government, which is a policy team writes down something clever, tosses it over the wall to an implementation team, who toss it over the wall to the people who operationalize that. One of the factors of missions I think is quite different is the shape of those teams is quite different. As well as being multidisciplinary, I think they're also much more empowered 
much more empowered to sort of work out the how of delivering those outcomes. Um, as Ravi said, having that clarity of policy intent set at the political layer, but that team then experimenting, testing and learning, testing their riskiest assumptions, not just about the policy, but also how it's delivered and doing that in reality, rather than just through economic models and kind of relatively smart, but intellectual guesswork about false certainty. The other thing that's probably sort of relatively radical about that, how is a radical sense of transparency, how that team is being held accountable, how it's kind of communicating, how it's going about delivery. Final thing I'll say, I think that one thing that is important to note is there are examples of this, as I say, both in the UK, you also look to places like Australia and Estonia and Denmark. But again, in, even in those countries, I think we're just seeing bits and pieces of these kinds of ways of working that make missions real. No one has cracked this. And the reason why no one's cracked this is, is it's really difficult. Like, there's some quite profound institutional reform and organizational change that we're talking about here, culturally, process-wise, skills, and quite a lot of the underlying structures of public service organizations. So the really exciting stuff like procurement, how money gets funded, like how money flows through Whitehall, skills and capabilities. So there's a lot going on. That's a but to sort of wrap up, I think there's some real sense of potential in this. None of it's going to be straightforward, but mission-driven government definitely won't be real if it's just about smart policy ideas. Thank you very much, Andrew. Um, Ellie, from your perspective in, in Southwark and more generally. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think probably the, the best frame that I can use for this is 20 years of a career in crime and justice policy, because I think I would comfortably challenge any of you to think of an area that's been more bedeviled by short-termism, reactive policy, courting the media instead of looking at the evidence. Um, so I was delighted, I am delighted of course, to find that there is a whole mission dedicated to crime justice uh, and violence against women and girls in particular. Now just for those of you who haven't quite managed to learn them all by heart, I'll remind you the specific commitments in that, uh, under that mission are that we will, that Labour will halve violence against women and girls within a decade, halve the number of incidents of knife crime, a restore confidence in the police and in fact raise them to their highest levels and solve more crime. So nothing, nothing too ambitious there. Um, now, I think it is probably worth just saying um, that the picture we've got is a pretty grim one. You could hardly, you couldn't fail to improve on where we are. 80% of offenders are on their second offence. You can't actually build prisons fast enough to put them in. The government have committed to build another 20,000 prison places by 2025. On current commitments, they won't even get half of the way there. Uh, the criminal cases backlog in our courts has just sailed past 64,000 in the last quarter and is actually on its way to 65,000. Um, it is an absolutely dismal state of affairs. Um, so to, yes, absolutely. Of course, it appeals to me that we would, we would call it a mission. Um, but to answer the question about whether it's new, it's not new, I think, to have a, a mission or a vision or a goal or a moonshot in mind. What's quite unusual in this area is to stick to it. And that's my question for the Labour Party, because we, there will come a wobble. Assuming that Labour is lucky enough to win the next election, there will be a horrible case, or several. And then the question is, do we stick to what we said that we would do? Do we stick to the evidence base? Or do we actually come up with real ideas for how we break the cycle of offending, focus on re-offending, uh, where this government originally had some ideas, but they seem to have fallen by the wayside, or will we do what the government has fallen into in these last few months? Uh, and I'm not suggesting that some of the criminal justice pledges that the, this government have, have made have been wrong, but it's not a great sign when you can literally name the cases that have driven some major policy announcement. Lucy Letby making a, offenders appear for their sentencing in court. Colin Pitchfork, oh, we'll take over the parole process. It's the definition of short-term approaches, uh, and it isn't going to do anything towards breaking that, that longer-term um, offending and re-offending cycle. Uh, which is where the Labour Party needs to be, and I, and I hope we will be. Um, I'm going to do something really strange at Labour Party conference, again on the subject of, of whether or not um, this is new. I'm going to say something nice about Chris Grayling, MP, <laughs> who recently announced um, that he will be standing down, I think, at the next election, so perhaps that's why I'm inspired to be um, faintly generous towards him. His probation reforms, transforming rehabilitation, as they were called, privatising probation to everybody else, they've become a byword for public policy failure, followed up as they were by the almost as disastrous renationalisation um, of the probation service. But there was at least a vision. There was a goal. He was going to bring down uh, re-offending. That doesn't even cross the, the tables of, of his successors, um, or indeed the Prime Minister, for all their talk about victims. They're creating just as many, uh, indeed more, um, as, as we ever have. 
Uh, so that's my question for the Labour Party. Uh, it's, it's all well and good to have these missions. I'm, I'm so pleased to see this one in particular. It's been 20 years of my career in public policy, but are we going to stick to it when it gets difficult? Thank you very much. Kevin. Right. So while we're on Labour's missions, um, I kind of want to re remark on the growth mission, which is, as Keir has set out, the sort of most important and foundational mission. And as a macroeconomist, I'm, I completely agree with him. Um, but I also think, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to solve public services, we're going to need higher tax revenues. We're going to, we're going to need uh, to, you know, transform the growth picture. But I, I sort of want to start out on the defensive a little bit because there have been a lot of commentators who I respect who've been on various podcasts criticizing the, the growth mission uh, in its construction. And I think the, the kind of the first part of that is about it being difficult to control what happens elsewhere in the G7. So, you know, this is we need the highest sustained growth in the G7. But really, that misunderstands the nature of long term growth. So if you are at the technological frontier, then you sort of just have to wait for the, the innovation to come. And, you know, maybe you can help direct that. But if you're a small country, you're only going to be a small part of that. If you're a very poor country, you can grow faster than rich countries because you can catch up with them. The UK's productivity growth is 25% behind the frontier, the productivity level, sorry. And so it has the opportunity to close that gap by catching up with best practice. And traditionally, you see that gap closed by about 2 to 3% a year. So that means you should have about 60 basis points higher growth if you're just doing okay, let alone doing well. So, you know, if you do focus on this, there is a huge opportunity to do it that is like completely practical. And that is, you know, accumulated, accumulated over time would be completely transformative. The, the other element of it is I think people think that the growth is somehow sort of right wing or neoliberal, but the, the sort of the way it's framed in the mission makes clear that it's paying attention to the quality of the growth. It's paying attention to it being growth that is resilient. It's growth that is broad based across regions and across income groups. Um, and that is the, the sort of priority of the public uh, when we go out and speak to them. And that is something that a Labour government can deliver. Thank you. I mean, one of the things about the economic mission, if you like, is it's mm -hmm. incredibly broad. Mm -hmm. It's basically, you know, how does how do we improve the economic growth of the whole country? Do you think it's meaningful to define missions in that kind of incredibly broad way rather than something more tight? I think it, it, it is. And I think that it sort of forces you to create a framework in which you are going to deliver. And I think this... You know, we can kind of we'll come, come back to some of this, but, you know, you can kind of set out the different pillars that you're going to look at. And you say, OK, we need to solve investment, but we also need to crowd in private investment from our public investment. But wouldn't you do that anyway, even if you just sort of said we're going to have a plan for economic growth? Um, well, I mean, that, it is having a plan, right? Okay. <laughs> it's a form of that. OK. But, I mean, Andrew, your, your take on this, do you, do you think that the missions, missions need to be small and discreet and tight? Or do you think it's OK to have these big umbrella, uh, large sprawling things. I, I think the sense of moonshot and inspiration is a, is a useful and good thing, not least for the prioritisation that you kind of mentioned. And I think, as, as Ellie says, the sort of the real test will be when something kind of comes in from left field. That said, I think one of the things that's, that's really important about this, both as sort of the delivery sense, but also the public perception of it, I think part of this is sort of setting out goals that kind of look out to 2030, but part of it is also proving that government's got a muscle to make things better by next Friday, frankly. That kind of speed of iteration and delivery in terms of the how that comes alongside those missions is also really important. Because I think the, the thing that could kind of kill this politically is if the gap between the rhetoric and the reality just grows wider and wider, and then I think you're kind of back in the status quo. Great, thank you. Now, um, speaking of risk-taking and experimentation, I've just had an update that my brother has managed to make it through to the next round of Strictly. <laughs> so I'm very happy about that. Uh, <laughs> moonshot goals and all. Um, <laughs> moving swiftly on, I, I want to come back to sort of what we can learn, what can we learn from past Labour governments, or actually past Tory governments, either positive or negative, that could inform how you do mission-driven government. Ellie, do you want to kick off? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I benefit from the fact that the area I've, I've, I've outlined is, is the one that still has, I think, still probably the most famous political slogan in, in British history. Right? We, we can all say it, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Um, I think that was in its way a, a mission, wasn't it? it? It may not have been called that, but it, it set out what the, what the goal was. 
I think there are very reasonable questions about how, how far we, we achieved uh, both sides um, of that equation. And that's what I actually really like about the new approach. I like that it comes with measurable goals. Now, I would say that. I'm a policy wonk. I, I'm never able in, in my work to present anything if I don't say exactly how, we, how we're going to know whether we've succeeded or not. But actually, in government, in politics, it's quite new. Um, so that's, I think that's the part of it uh, okay. that's, that's new and that's that we, sh we should learn from. Kevin? Mm. So I think there's uh, quite a lot we can learn from the last Labour government. I think we should think about a lot of the frameworks they put in place were basically correct for delivering the growth that we want around the country, the, the, particularly the framework around regional development. But they just failed to put enough cash behind it and they failed to tackle housing and the planning system. And you know, it wasn't they, like they sort of had the, the broad structure right but didn't, didn't follow through. Um, I think where, where we could learn perhaps more is actually looking across to the US. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, this is something Rachel's been very clear that she's been doing, going and looking at what the Biden administration's been, been putting in place. And there, they've got a very clear vision. They know, you know what, they need to, what they need to do in terms of the threat of China, the deindustrialization they've seen, and the need to tackle climate change. And sort of wrapping that together, you know, they've, they've really put forward a transformative investment agenda. Great, thank you. Um, Andrew, I wonder if, if you, it, it, there's some interesting suggestions coming up in terms of policy successes. What strikes me is that some of them have quite long-term institutional frameworks put around them. So Bank of England independence is a good example. The minimum wage is another one where you had the Low Pay Commission setting that recommendation that then government responds to um, the smoking ban again, long-term regulation. So um, any reflections on successes, but also on some of the things coming up? Yeah, I mean, I think to sort of combine the two, it sort of reflects the need that there will be a kind of a need for probably new forms of institution in order to drive these kind of um, measures. And I think that's kind of quite an important thing to think about. What I don't think that should mean is just thinking about this in terms of putting new nameplates on doors across Whitehall. Machinery of government alone is not going to be enough to drive this, but there are clearly some institutional models that will help embed some of that longer term cross administration, multiple administration thinking. I think one of the other things that I think is really was really valuable the previous Labour administration really valued was that focus on delivery at the centre of government and kind of attaching real political attention and power to that. I think that was that was particularly important. And something just to sort of, because we're being relatively generous to the Tories on this panel, I think we should kind of give a shout out to some of the work that Francis Moore did on functional reform, where in a sort of slightly countercultural way, actually brought in quite a lot of new skills in-house into the civil service, which actually reduced some of the dependence that, that, that government had on the consultancy market, which I think in terms of digital skills, in terms of data science skills, in terms of commercial skills, was actually quite powerful and will be quite important for this as well. Great, thank you. Um, so one of the really difficult things I think about mission-driven government is how it goes down with the public. So we did some polling where we compared um, a step-by-step -step costed plan versus missions. And I think naturally people probably want that sort of certainty that I've worked out a plan and I'm going to stick to it even though perhaps in the heart of hearts they kind of want to call bullshit on it and say it's not going to work, but that, that kind of goes down slightly better on some of the polling. But I'm interested in, in your thoughts on the politics of, of speaking about missions, um, because I think you could challenge it from all sorts of directions. One, shouldn't politicians under-promise and over-deliver? Um, you know, don't, don't people just want the basics fixing right now? You know, nothing too fancy, just make, you know, get, the, get waiting lists down, get some of the basic ambulance services working. Mm. Missions can sound almost highfalutin and quixotic. So do you think politically this works? And if there are challenges, how do you make it work? She wants to pick that up. She wants to pick it up, Ellie. I'll dive in. Um, I do think it works. And I think it works because of the particular electoral challenge that Labour faces, which is actually less about what you will do and the detail of it, mm -hmm. as about whether or not the public trusts you to come back into government in the first place. And I think the idea that, not just the party, but let's be honest, it's about the leader. It always comes back to the leader. It's driven by a sense of mission. I think that is really important to both his and the party's personal brand. The detail can come later, and there is a trap in that. I think once you're a couple of years in, fingers crossed that that happens, uh, if you don't have the detail and if you don't have the fully costed plan, you will start to, uh, to, to lose credibility. But I don't think that's the moment that we're in now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's interesting that polling suggesting that, because I think 
yes, I can sort of see a public appetite for certainty, but I think what there is a really strong appetite for is clarity and accountability as much as anything else. And I think in some ways I found the, the, the COVID press conferences were quite an interesting rhythm of that. People got that it was an inherently highly complex and uncertain situation. People were always like, graphs on the television? This is quite profound. And I think this is kind of a moment to look at some of those public accountability mechanisms, having people, A, who actually knew what they were talking about, genuine experts in front of the public on a regular basis, explaining kind of progress towards delivery, plus the re relatively real-time data. Those two things, you don't get those in select committees. You don't get them now. I think that kind of mechanism for accountability is also something that, to me, fits very neatly with some of the missions and perhaps drags them back from just being these sort of relatively highfalutin concepts into the reality that, in a way that public, the public can really connect with them. The problem, I think, actually with certainty in some ways is the real addicts for certainty are the Treasury. They love a bit of certainty particularly if it's not actually available. It's quite hard to work out what certainty is in highly complex social problems of the kind we're talking about with missions. And so I, I'm always slightly kind of allergic to the kind of fully costed policy idea because they're, they're largely fictitious. <laughs> They've never been tested with reality, really. So what a lot of this is about is getting past that a little bit and actually kind of experimenting in order to build that certainty by testing those policies along with the implementation in reality. So one thing we found, because we've done a lot of focus groups on uh, many of these issues, is that people always say they want a fully costed plan. They kind of want to go down in the detail of exactly how you're going to get a return from it. But very few of them ha read many of the OBR's reports <laughs> or many things coming from the Treasury. And actually what they really want is like clarity of thought and confidence from the, uh, the politician who's delivering the, the message to them. And it's that rather than, you know, the sort of bean counting element that's really at the heart of it. And what they want is a vision that is based on sort of security and something that, you know, and I think the thing about these missions, which I think is good, like the Apollo project, you know, you're in a world where you've got 25% poverty rate and you spend 5% of your government budget on getting to the moon. Like that's completely frivolous. Like these things are grounded in what people need to do, what need people in, need, need in their lives right now like both in a sort of defensive, but also in a, in a positive way in sort of giving them the, the things they need to live a good life and you know, have fun and, and do the things they want. Mm -hmm. well, one reflection is that again under Labour, there were two types of targets that emerged. Um, there were some targets that were these public service agreements that were carefully calibrated they were attempted, they were, they were trying to make them achievable. Um, sometimes they were not very well calibrated. Um, and then there were the things, what, things you might call aspirational targets, like ending child poverty, 20 years. And they were talked in vague and more aspirational terms, and therefore they, they weren't inviting deep accountability for failure. And, and one question I've got for you is almost, some of these missions, if you take power sector decarbonisation by 2030, that is phenomenally um, ambitious. Um, and how, how, how can we have a political culture that actually talks about failure in a more acceptable way? Is, it, is, is Whitehall, is the media ready for it? Are politicians skillful enough to be able to handle failure? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, well, I think they, you know, they, they've really set themselves ambitious like, asks and, you know, Every, every meeting of them there, they back themselves to do it and they're gonna you know, push everything to do it. I mean, one thing I will say is that one, one thing that's quite useful is it will really set all of the machinery of government behind it because it's, it's so clear as something that the civil service will need to deliver on. And that will be a sort of consistent, stable policy for them, even as ministers change and prioritizations change. And so, you know, once you have that clarity of thought already put in place, then everything can get behind it. Yeah, I mean, I think part will come down to um, the prioritizing prioritization point again. Events will undoubtedly hit the government. So if we, if they don't end up with ten missions by the end of their first year, they're doing quite well. And that's that's the thing that I would genuinely worry about. I do think as well it kind of comes back to the point that Kevin makes on 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 the kind of the structure of accountability within government, both at the political level and at the public service level. One of the things that introduces huge amount of friction, both in terms of time but also in terms of cost, is just the sort of the, the navigating of the Whitehall and public service bureaucracy in order to kind of align those incentives across the system. So if it does lead to that kind of the courage in tackling some of those things, 
And that will actually probably also extend out, to be honest, into sort of parliamentary accountability as well, which are not trivial questions. Then I think it is possible, but it will require quite a lot of political courage and capital, which you only spend on a relatively small number of things in order for that to happen. Great. Um, what I was going to suggest we each, you each of you do, each of you do is think of a mission, and just spell out how would what would a mission-driven approach to to the economy mm -hmm. look like, and why why would it be distinctive? Uh, and just 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 talk us through what, what you know, if you were in charge of those missions, what would you actually do? Who wants to kick off? Ah, uh, this is risky, but I'll try because I'm definitely one who has weakest understanding of the policy area, and having not been you, a policy you do, you person, do any well, mission, you I'm going to have a go with. I'm going to have a decarbonising heat and heat pumps. Okay. So the first thing I'd start with is um, making sure that I had a responsible, accountable minister who could articulate that kind of mm -hmm. policy intent clearly. So Chris Grayling, I think we're saying, is probably the best candidate at the moment. <laughs> then, then, then I would draw together um, a relatively small, like, you know, probably 10 to 12 people, empowered multidisciplinary teams. So people who really understand the policy landscape, people who kind of understand the economic analysis around subsidies, all the kind of the existing situational awareness that we've got around this, people who've got the digital and technology skills to deliver services, but also the people who understand the operations. So people who have been involved in installing heat pumps in actual houses in the last 12 months, they know where the real kind of problems are, where the real friction points in that service. And then I would try and find a relatively small area, maybe a kind of a postcode or something like that. Um, so small enough, diverse enough to sort of test a range of different use cases, and actually try and go out and install some heat pumps and see what happens, see what really gets in the way, try some different levels of subsidy, try some different service designs for getting those in. Maybe try some different solutions, maybe you'd kind of look at alternative kind of zero carbon heat things, but you'd probably focus relatively clearly on the core proposition. But the point is to sort of do a full, very thin end-to-end -end slice of getting some something installed in someone's house. And in so doing, exposing a huge number of things that at the start, when you're trying to define that policy up front, you would definitely get wrong. And you would probably have to write them into legislation or at least write them into your economic modeling. And by doing that, you would sort of find out and reveal quite a lot of the friction and pain points that you'd have along the way. Once you'd done that core proposition, you would then think about scaling, which will throw up a whole bunch of other difficult things as you go along. But you kind of keep iterating and experimenting as you go, exposing the risky assumptions to, and testing them over time. And I think what is very radical and different about that to how policy is done right now is normally we do policy and legislation and then we get bored in central government about the practice, the, that, all that implementation stuff. Whereas actually you're sort of inverting that and saying, let's start by doing absolutely and then reverse engineer the policy and the institutions to enable that to, to flourish which is actually totally different to how we do things now um who wants to go next uh i will because i don't think anyone's gonna be very surprised by which, <laughs> which mission i'm gonna choose um the crime mission uh i would start with being prepared to be extremely unpopular mm -hmm. it is both literally and metaphorically true that there are no votes in prisons uh but that is where uh, real delivery on that on that mission has to start um, I would drop the commitment personally to 20,000 new prison places. We've got nowhere to build them. We can't get them through planning. The government is not going to deliver uh, on the ones they've promised. And what do we do when, when, even if we did build them when those were all full up? Uh, I would start um, implementing the welter um, of evidenced uh, policies around women, around taking them out of prison, around putting them into smaller custodial units. Um, which deliver better results um, for them and for their families and for the community at large. I would actually do the same with older prisoners. That is the next brewing scandal in criminal justice. Our prisons are not built for the increasing numbers of older offenders, largely as a, as, as a result of um, historical cases um, that are being placed there. There are so many legal cases on the horizon. Um, it's going to cost us a fortune. It's time we started looking at alternatives for older prisoners as well. Um, none of this is going to be very popular, but I am bolstered in my conviction that it's the right thing to do by looking at some of the examples that the audience have sent us. Quite a few of those involved staring down um, unpopular policies and responses to unpopular policies from the public, from the media, but they're still the right thing to do. Right. Great. And so I'll stick to the growth mission as well. And, you know, I think here, you know, the, the key thing is you've got to invest to grow. And you know, we've got bold policies on public investment, but that on its own isn't enough. There's, there's no way you can, you can do it on, on, on alone through, uh, through public investment alone. Private investment is the bulk of investment. And so you have to think about the tools you have 
And so you've got catalytic, catalytic public investment. You've got regulatory changes you can use. So particularly planning reform. And then you've got partnership between business, workers, government. And you've got to use that full range of tools and you've got to integrate them and make them, you know, leverage each, each other more. And you've got, to, you've got to figure out how to do that differently in different geographic areas because the, the sort of challenges and barriers to growth are very different in the north to the south. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, I've got one more question for you, but let's go to the floor first and see if um, there are any points or questions people want to make. Um, you can either, yeah, either a statement or a question is fine. Hi. Is this on? Yep. Yeah. Um, Izzy Woolgar, Centre for Net Zero, uh, part of the Octopus Energy Group. Um, I can't remember which panellist mentioned the Labour's target of decarbonising the energy sector in the grid by 2030. I think people are split on whether or not that's a, a good thing. I think half of people think it's farcical and the other half think it's a great ambition. To what extent does the panel um, believe that it's important to set goals that might not necessarily be within our reach? The other obvious example is the Paris Agreement, let's say, where a whole load of countries got behind a goal that looks increasingly unlikely that we're going to be able to achieve. But at the time, it was really important to get so many people behind that. So interested in the panel's views on kind of setting ambitious and slightly unrealistic targets. Thanks. Great question. Um, OK, who wants to pick the one up? I'll have a go. I mean, speaking purely personally, like I think there's definitely quite limited shelf life in setting targets that significantly inform stakeholders think is insane. So there's like, <laughs> there is value clearly and you can make lots of Overton window arguments. I think the arguments on sending a very clear signal to the system as a whole that this is something that the government is taking enormously seriously to the point where it will have to reassign and reprioritize resources and focus in order to do that is quite valuable because there's no way of achieving something that is that ambitious without making some quite difficult decisions about moving focus money etc from one place to another so i think there's virtues in that but it's definitely quite a dangerous political game to play because if it kind of you reveal quite quickly that those things simply aren't achievable then you lose credibility quite quickly i'm also speaking as a formal civil servant so i can feel everything going it's too much it's too much too fast but i think the idea of having something that is sufficiently ambitious that people have no choice but to kind of restack the deck of priorities and move resources around is quite valuable So I think that there is a um, basically imperative for us to be ambitious in, in, the, uh, in, the t in the sort of missions that we're setting on the climate. And I think if there are people who think that we can do it and there's a split, then I think we should push to doing that. Mm -hmm. And if we slightly fail, we slightly fail, but we've given it our best go. I'll give a contrasting view to that just from the local experience as, as a councillor in Southwark. I think um, if you set over-ambitious targets that the public is not behind, that is a different thing from if you're doing it in an area where actually there really is consensus and people, people won't mind as much if you fail, if they're pleased you made the attempt. But where something remains contentious, and I've been disappointed to learn how contentious some of the environmental agenda still is, I, I do think you've got to be more cautious there. It's quite interesting reflecting back on historically what's happened when politicians have set ludicrous targets at the time. Um, the renewables target actually that was set in the mid 2000s from the renewables directive from the EU at the time was thought to be totally ludicrous. In fact, I think the story was that Tony Blair didn't got mixed up between electricity and energy. Mm. And that's how we ended up with a 30% of our electricity should be renewable by 2020. And everybody in government, myself included, all thought it's impossible, absolutely impossible. The only person who didn't was the mad minister called Greg Barker. Um, and it turned out he was the person who was right. And we ended up achieving <laughs> that because there was massive breakthroughs, as you all know, in, in solar PV and wind and, and other technologies. And that was, though, you know, 12, 13, 14 years in advance. You could say the Climate Change Act is similarly um, long term. We didn't really know how we were going to achieve it. But it has stimulated innovation. And, and, and you don't know. I think the difficulty is with something like energy decarbonisation by 2030 is it's quite near. 
you actually know already what's actually in the pipeline, what's possible. And it's very consequential. If you take it seriously, you've got to build a load of grid infrastructure. There's all sorts of things, other things you have to do. So you can't just um, have a sort of aspirational target and think, well, it doesn't matter if we if we don't succeed. There are actually real consequences if, if you don't succeed. So I think it does um, vary. Um, but I do also think that in certain contexts, by setting that very, very uh, ambitious target, you overachieve what you would have done otherwise without it. And therefore, then the question is politically, can you handle the, the failure? Because actually, it's a relative success. And that's really, for me, about how, how do we talk about the missions? How do we talk about the baseline and, and not get slammed hmm. when you're failing, <laughs> in, inverted, in inverted commas? Just, uh, I completely agree with that. And just one other thing that slightly more constructive than saying that big targets are quite scary. One of the things that I kind of worry about sometimes because uh, with, with setting those kinds of ambitions is that they can leave people thinking the only way of doing it, to sort of Ravi's point on renewables, is some, through some sort of fairly major technological leap. And what that leads to, frankly, is quite a lot of magical thinking about technology and what magical thinking about technology, which many kind of companies are very happy, happy to market, is that people then lean on that without thinking about what are the organizational policy, regulatory and so on consequences. So I think that's just one of the notes of caution that exists around some of those big targets. If you're making them predicated on big, relatively unevidenced bets on tech leaps, which may happen, certainly did in renewables, but aren't a given, that's when I'd be quite wary. Great, thank you. Who else wants to come in? Yeah. Let's take three in, a, in, in one go. Hi, Kirsty Innes from Labour Together. I was wondering if the panel thinks there have been examples of mission-driven government successes outside the UK? Great. Hi, Emma Norris, Institute for Government. Um, at IFG, and I think uh, as lots of think tanks find, central government can really struggle to uh, deliver on kind of big cross-cutting um, policies like missions. Um, and in our research, when we've looked at the kind of big cross-cutting policies that have been successful, one of the mess messages that often comes out is the importance of prime ministerial leadership and the need for that leadership at the top. But on the other hand, sometimes, you know, just coming back to that message again and again can feel quite unrealistic given the kind of scale of challenges that we're facing. So I'd be fascinated to hear the panel's views on how important that leadership right from the kind of top of government is in delivering missions like the ones that Labour is setting out. Thanks. Hi, I'm Tom Lee Small from Public Digital. Um, just want to dig into... Uh, as a, another recovering civil servant, I remember just the power of the Treasury Green Book business case process in demanding false certainty out of situations of genuine complexity where false certainty is just not possible. I'd love the panel's thoughts on how you manage that risk to the mission of missions. Okay. thought those are three really bloody difficult questions. <laughs> Luckily, on the chair, so... <laughs> um, who's, who wants to pick that? Who wants to pick up? So you've got um, you know, PM leadership... Um, you've got the Green Book and the Treasury making it difficult to communicate uncertainty. Um, and then you've got the, the, the first question, which was um, international examples of mission-driven government. Yeah. I'm, happy, gone. Go I'm happy to have a go. On international examples, I'm, I'm just going to be blunt and say no. I don't think so. Not, not at the level that, that is being talked about in the context of this. There have been kind of sort of even at a sort of program level maybe there's been some profound changes to ways of working in part i mentioned estonia in my kind of introduction that's a government that's sort of fundamentally built on different kind of foundational infrastructure and different tech that's because in the 1990s they didn't have any because russia took most of it away so it's not necessarily a replicable example but the short answer i think frankly is no really. what about sort of covid vaccine uh, in america or here or elsewhere would you would you say that's a uh, uh, so that's not a bad counter argument but i think quite so the qualifier that, I just wanted to do a short answer so we get through lots of questions. Um, uh, the qualifier is that in a crisis, interestingly, governments around the world have totally thrown up the rule book in terms of governance and process and culture, which has allowed this, these kinds of ways of working to happen. Post-COVID, a lot of that in all sorts of countries, including the UK, has kind of gone back to the status quo in lots of places. So it's crisis changes the incentive structures profoundly. Um, on the PM leadership question, I think it is very important that there is a strong, like, p 
political and central focus on this, and I think you can't disaggregate number 10 and the Treasury in terms of the kind of the leaves of power that you need in, to make this happen, both from a kind of public and political cover, but also the kind of mechanisms you need within Whitehall, which I know the Institute for Government knows extremely well, so I won't go any further into that. And I think I'll leave the Green Book to others, <laughs> but I'm happy to pitch in. Mm. I will have a go at, uh, I'll certainly have a go at the first two, I'll see how I feel about the, the third one. Um, no, I can't think of other examples, um, and that is probably partly a failing on my part because I work in an area that is, is so dissimilar um, from the criminal justice system in, in other countries. But I also think it's probably to do with our, with our electoral system. Um, the fact that when you have systems in which coalitions are more common, then obviously you're going to be more flexible, you're going to be more reactive to, to the changing uh, political agenda anyway. I think what I'm actually saying is that, that we, I finally found an advantage to first past the post, which is it, it, it does give you um, a degree of continuity if you're prepared to use it. And I guess that is what Labour's attempting. This is, after all, a, a two electoral cycle strategy, the missions. We're talking about you know, a, a 10 year mm -hmm. time frame. That does allow me slightly to segue into the question from Emma about um, the importance of leadership. I think it's obvious at the moment, certainly, that, 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 that the centrality of the Prime Minister or the, the leader of the opposition is that there's no getting away from it. But I don't think that's inevitable. And I wonder if we're going to learn from the current government, hopefully the outgoing government, on that. You topple the leader, you topple the whole programme. That's not a good thing. Now, Labour, if it goes into power, is doing so with an awful lot of big beasts waiting to take on ministerial briefs. I think a level of trust in them and letting them lead their areas is actually really important for the success of the whole agenda. Mm -hmm. Well, so I might push back slightly on, on that final bit, because I think so... It's sort of useful to contrast France and the UK. So, that, that, you know, France has been more successful at having sort of industrial strategy. And I think part of that is that you have more of a sense that, you know, you're a custodian in your brief and you are taking it on. And there are some things that are more long term that have been put in place by predecessors and you will carry on with. Whereas here, every time the deck chairs are rearranged, all the policy goes out the window. Everyone wants to you know, make their mark on the department. And that's why, you know, if the prime minister has said it and the prime minister continues for, you know, more than one year or whatever um, uh, was traditional in previous, in previous eras, then you can have uh, sort of direction provided in that way. But, you know, that's why the missions sort of reshape this, because, you know, they're something that have been agreed upon widely, you know, could even, uh, you know, outlive uh, Starmer, the, you know, I did, you know, we can't uh, count our chickens before they hatch, but, you know, we should be, you know, planning for a couple turns. Um, and so, you know, that is a sort of reshaping of the incentive structure that ministers will sort of operate within and they'll feel less of a, a sort of need to, you know, st stamp their own mark on, on the brief. Great, thank you. I mean, just on this question about the centre, um, and I think what was interesting, again, under Labour, you had a division of Labour between Gordon Brown taking on things like DWP and DFID and, and some of his client departments, and then Blair had things like health and the other public services, which worked to some degree, although it often created a massive tension when Blair wanted to do something on health and, and it needed Treasury approval. So I think, you, as Andrew said, you have to have Number 10 and the Treasury united and deeply engaged. Um, there are dangers in, in over-centralisation, I think, the centre always thinks it knows more than it does, and actually you need to trust local government, central, central government departments, rather than think you can hold it all. That's part of, I think, the point about mission-driven government. It requires experimentation. But it does require more engagement from the centre to sponsor things, get problems out of the way, than I think we've had over the last 13 years. So we've basically had a very weak centre since 2010. Um, and I think you do need that engaged and joined up number 10 treasury combination. Just on uncertainty, I think... I totally agree with you in terms of it being a massive blocker, but I wonder how we solve it. And I think possibly we need some external institutions to force government to convey uncertainty better. So when we do produce estimates on the next high-speed rail or whenever we produce any um, statement of policy, we should have some external audit of, is that evidence-based? How uncertain is the projection? What are the error bars? Um, you know, we used to internally produce um, complicated Monte Carlo statistical analyses of, of, of the error bars around things, but we never used to communicate them. Uh, and as a result, we sometimes believed our own hype and it becomes pickled into a sort of fact when actually you look at the root analysis and it was a lot more uncertain. So I think that external organizations, the media, maybe the National Audit Office should be 
probably promoting that because I think it will help. Um, right, um, any final questions? If not, I've got one final one for the panel. Okay, we, I wanted to touch on local government because um, the language of missions can almost sound quite centralizing. You can imagine mission control and czars, and <laughs> it can, yeah, that, it sort of, that makes me feel quite worried. But actually, the spirit of missions is about experimentation, trying things out in different places, in different ways. Um, what do you think the sort of central local um, balance should be in relation to missions? How can that be a, a sort of productive uh, partnership? Ellie. Well, as a local councillor, I'm tempted to be facetious. Give us the money, we'll do the experimentation. How does, how does that sound? Um, I think the, the, the question there is about um, where the evidence is best going to come from, um, to my mind. And I think some, clearly some approaches um, are better tested at the local level because that's where, you, that's where, that's where the, the, the wheels hit the road, um, to use, use the quite a current example from our attempts in Southwark and in other councils um, to, to, to maintain that, that sense of momentum um, on the environmental uh, front. Um, but there are other things, and the, the one I started with, criminal justice is an area where there is, in my mind, very limited potential and, in fact, real danger uh, in too much devolution. So I'm, I'm aware it's a boring answer, but I think some, some things are, are properly the, the terrain of local government, and there should be more confidence in our fantastic Labour councils who've been uh, running, running um, whole, whole areas of this country while the Labour government's been out of power for 13 years, but there are some things that properly belong with central government. Great, thank you. So if in every country in Europe you increase the productivity of every region below the 75th percentile to the 75th percentile, which is kind of levelling up to quite high, you would boost output per person by more in the UK than any other country, including Germany, which was half occupied by the Soviet Union 30 years ago. Um, so, you know, to solve the growth challenge, you have to work with the regions and you know this sort of central approach has clearly failed so you know it's got to be done in partnership it's got to be you know you've you've got to recognize where there are capacity issues and where you can go in and, and help and try and solve those but you've got to devolve power and you've got to devolve responsibility if you're if you're going to solve it and we should just allow lots of different outcomes as a result you'd be happy to sort of hand the accountability as well down to local government yeah i think we need to think about precisely how we devolve like full power and accountability it's got to be a sort of step-by-step -step approach you know if you you don't have the same civil society around um lo like more local governments you know with the decline of local papers you don't have committees who will go and examine them and hold them to account in the same way and we need to develop those sort of ecosystems at the same time but you know yeah we should we should do experimentation and let a thousand flowers bloom andrew final thing on this yeah i mean i think the, the sort of ways of working that i've been trying to describe are sort of de equally apply at the local government level and fundamentally a lot of what we're talking about here in terms of that experimentation is reducing the sense of the gap between very smart generalists who are working in SW1 through to the reality of frontline delivery where the outcomes hit the road. Our local government's going to be close to that a lot of the time. Yes, they are, but not in every case, as Ellie said. So there clearly is a really strong role um, for those institutions in all of this. And indeed, some of the kind of the work that most resembles some of the ways of working that you would associate with missions, I think, in the future is already happening in parts of local government already. So I, I think there's sort of quite a natural sense of partnership there. Thank you. Well, thank you very much to all the panellists. Thanks very much to you uh, for, for coming. Um, just final thing on this is that we're going to be publishing something actually from Public, public Digital on mission-driven government um, shortly. Um, and Nesta is also going to be um, sharing some thoughts and reflections on how to make mission-driven government work well. Um, I do think this is going to be quite a slow burn in that it will start to form part of how Labour thinks about governing. Um, even if it's not obvious right now exactly how mission-driven government will work differently and distinctively mm -hmm. compared to the status quo. But I think over the next year, things will start to take shape in a, in a bigger way. So watch this space. Thank you very much for coming and um, have a very good conference.